Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. It is time for six impossible episodes. Hooray! So our last few six impossibles have had a running theme. We had a set of six stories that were about frontline heroism from soldiers and spies. And before that, we had six episodes that sound a lot like episodes we had already done. And before that, there were six stories that might have been apocryphal, maybe not. And so today we once again have six short stories as these things go. But this time it's kind of a hodgepodge. These are all frequent requests several of them very heavily requested. And we're going to talk about them all in one go. Um, they don't have a lot of thematic commonality among one another, except the fact that people have asked us to talk about them. And just a quick note that a couple of these are quite violent. And the first one includes a couple of brief mentions of rape and sexual assault. So first up, in July of this year, which we are recording in 2017, we got a whole lot of requests via email and social media to do a podcast about Olive Yang. Yang died on July 13th at the age of 90, and their obituary got a lot of attention. Yang was born Yang Kinsu in 1927 in what was then British Burma and is now more commonly known as Myanmar. This was in the Golden Triangle of Southeast Asia. That's a region along the border of Myanmar, Laos, and Thailand, which was a major supplier in the global opium trade for a lot of the 20th century. Yang was descended from the royal house of the Shan state of Kolang, but the family fled the region during Japanese invasions in World War II. Yang defied gender expectations and was described as a tomboy, wearing boys' clothes and carrying guns, and having no desire at all to marry or become a mother. In their later years, Olive, whose native language has no gendered pronouns, uh, would ask to be called Uncle Yang. And all of this together is why, for this episode, we are going with the pronoun they when we reference Olive. In spite of their protests, Yang was forced into an arranged marriage with a younger cousin. Yang's mother died before the wedding day, and their father was in very ill health, but the wedding went on as planned, and Yang, then left with this unwanted duty of providing an heir, refused to do it, reportedly throwing a chamber pot at the groom on their wedding night. Yang's son, Jipu, was ultimately conceived through marital rape. Even before Jipu was born, Yang had already left the family and fallen in with bandits and opium traders. With a reputation for a fiery temper and always being armed, they wound up being offered the command of an army of 300 men. On the way to take command, Yang's caravan encountered some drunken officers trying to extort bribes. So Yang kidnapped the officers and brought them along the rest of the way to the outpost. This ruffled some feathers. Yeah, this was a lot of... I'm going to do what I want. And then uh, people being like, okay, that was maybe, maybe that, that is going to raise some eyebrows. After Jibu was born in 1951, Yang left him with a wet nurse. He went on to be raised by a series of uncles. Yang then turned their attention to developing the trade routes that would turn the region into the world's largest supplier of opium for a time, commanding a fighting force of up to a thousand men and developing a reputation for being particularly fierce. 
During the Cold War, the United States wanted to influence policy and military outcomes in parts of the world where it wasn't really supposed to be operating. And this was especially true when it came to attempts to stop or roll back the spread of communism. Without the ability to publicly intervene, the United States instead turned to a number of covert programs to try to achieve the same end. One of these was codenamed Operation Paper, in which the CIA funded and armed various militias, most of them involved in opium trafficking. These forces included remnants of the Chinese Nationalist Army Kuomintang, or KMT, which had been defeated by Mao Zedong in 1949. Some of the KMT were under Yang's command. Yang's troops were on the receiving end of these covert airdrops at least once. In 1952, Yang's force crossed the border into Thailand illegally to retrieve weapons that had been dropped by an unmarked CIA-owned aircraft. The government of what was then Burma complained to the UN General Assembly. Yang was later arrested, sentenced to five years in prison. A couple of years after being released, Yang took over the former army of their elder brother, who had abdicated his role in the Shan government and thus became the region's de facto leader. In 1963, Yang was captured again and spent more than six years in prison, much of it in solitary confinement. They later reported to relatives that they were repeatedly tortured and sexually abused while behind bars. After their second release from prison, Yang found that one of their lieutenants, Lo Sing Han, had essentially taken over the opium trade that Yang had built. Lo Sing Han wound up being a far more notorious name in the opium trade than Yang did, at least until more recently, uh, following some news coverage. Yang described themselves as a lesbian, and their relationships were often the fodder of gossip columns and tabloids, including a reported relationship with actress Wawa Win Shui. In 2015, Win Shui denied that relationship in spite of having lived in a house that Yang owned and giving the interview in question in a rebuilt house that sat on the same property. Not all of Yang's life was so notorious or sensationalized, though. Later on, their active time in the opium trade was essentially over, but Yang still had really extensive connections within all of these criminal organizations, which led to their being recruited to try to negotiate peace agreements with those organizations on behalf of the government. So, obviously, there is a lot going on here. Olive Yang is a fascinating and complicated character who was connected to the opium trade, international disputes, and covert CIA programs. Myanmar has been in the news a lot over the last few years, but for a range of reasons, its history hasn't really been covered on our show. So it's not surprising at all that people asked for more. Uh, But here's the thing about trying to make a whole episode about Olive Yang. In terms of what's available in English, pretty much all of this information goes back to reporting done by Gabrielle Paluk, which was picked up and redistributed by The World from PRI. Other outlets that picked it up from there either go back to Paluk's reporting or to Paluk herself in interviews. So it's clear from all of this reporting that other information about Olive Yang exists, but most of that isn't really information that we can get to as an English-speaking podcast on the other side of the world. And Paluk is reportedly working on a book, according to the Washington Post, about all of this. And we would absolutely read that. We absolutely would. That's going to be a running theme in this show. There are going to be several people who, if there were, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, an uh, uh, maybe not official, but if there were a comprehensive biography on their life, then probably we could do a complete episode. And they are all biographies that I would 
jump on the opportunity to read. Next up, we have another request that came in from a lot of people thanks to the internet. And that was the 1917 Silent Parade, which was also the subject of a Google Doodle, which is what led so many people to ask about it. The Silent Parade, known at the time as the Negro Silent Protest Parade, was a protest that took place on July 28, 1917, on Fifth Avenue in New York City. The NAACP organized this protest in response to Jim Crow laws, ongoing lynchings, and a riot in East St. Louis in which a white mob had killed more than 100 Black residents and destroyed the homes of about 6,000 more. The riot had taken place over July 1st through the 3rd, and that had been sparked in part by striking white workers' resentment that black strike breakers were replacing them at a bauxite processing plant. So taken from the letter that was distributed in advance of the march, sort of as instructions, quote, we march because by the grace of God and the force of truth, the dangerous hampering walls of prejudice and inhuman injustices must fall. We march because we want to make impossible a repetition of Waco, Memphis, and East St. Louis by rousing the conscience of the country and bring the murderers of our brothers, sisters, and innocent children to justice. We march because we deem it a crime to be silenced in the face of such barbaric acts. So that goes on with all of the reasons that they are marching, and then also gets into procedures for the march. And then the letter ended, quote, yours in righteous indignation, Reverend Shaz Martin, secretary. A list of mottos for signs and banners was distributed in advance of the march as well, including Make America Safe for Democracy, Mothers Do Lynchers Go to Heaven, 200,000 Black Men Fought for Your Liberty in the Civil War, and Tracy's favorite, Pray for the Lady Macbeths of East St. Louis. Uh, there have been a couple of different interpretations that have been circulated for that last one, one being that it referenced the white women of St. Louis who had egged on the mob. So about 10,000 people, all of them Black, participated in the silent march. The organizers went first, and then children, and then women who were all dressed in white, followed by all the men who were in dark suits. The protesters included W.E.B. Du Bois and James Weldon Johnson. James Weldon Johnson later wrote about it in his autobiography, saying, quote, The streets of New York have witnessed many strange sights, but I judge never one stranger than this. Among the watchers were those with tears in their eyes. This was certainly an important event in civil rights history. It was one of the first, if not the first, nonviolent mass protests against racism and racist violence. And the fact that all the marchers were black was also important. At this point, most civil rights organizations and activities were integrated, in part because the idea was so contentious that seeing white people involved made it somewhat more palatable to other white people. Yeah, having white people involved also offered at least some degree of protection. Like, there are so many stories about violence during the civil rights movement, and this is a little bit earlier than what a lot of pe people think of as the movement. Um, so it wasn't a guarantee of safety, but it was like a slight measure of safety sometimes. So it's likely that there's enough information about this march in archives or special collections to make it into a whole episode. But in terms of what's publicly available to us right now, that's the overview. And we're going to have some more stories, but first we're going to pause for a little sponsor break. On our list, we have gotten several requests for the Massacre of Glencoe, including from Hega and Neil, Ramona, 
Rosalia, Megan, and almost certainly others. And a lot of these came in around the time of the Game of Thrones episode, The Reigns of Castamere, uh, which also led to requests for another historical event known as the Black Dinner. The Glencoe Massacre was one of many bloody events in Scottish history that followed in the wake of the Glorious Revolution. We talk more about the Glorious Revolution in our podcast on the Jacobite Rising of 1745, uh, and we will link to that in the show notes. But very briefly, King James VII of Scotland and II of England was Catholic. And when he had a son, James Francis Edward Stuart, Protestants became concerned about having another Catholic in the line of succession. So Protestants in Scotland and elsewhere had hoped that James would die without an heir and then be succeeded by a Protestant monarch. With that no longer a possibility, some prominent Protestants got in touch with William of Orange and basically invited him and his army to come to England and take over. So he did. And William and his wife Mary became monarchs in 1689. Obviously, that's very highly condensed. (laughs) That's the speed round version. Uh, A number of Scottish clans remained loyal to King James and to the House of Stuart for both political and religious reasons. This was the basis for the Jacobite movement that we covered in that previous episode. And just FYI, also makes up the first chunk of the Outlander TV show and books. The new monarchs, William and Mary, recognizing the threat that the Jacobites posed both to their reign and to the overall stability of the kingdom, tried to secure the Scottish clan's loyalty. They took a very stick-and-carrot approach. They offered an indemnity to the clans that agreed to sign an oath of allegiance to them while authorizing attacks against the clans that didn't. As time went on, though, the focus got a lot more heavily on the stick than on the carrot. This deadline for signing this oath of allegiance uh, was January 1st of 1692, and this presented a number of logistical problems. Most clan chiefs needed to travel somewhere to sign the oath in the presence of a magistrate or sheriff, and winter in Scotland made that rather difficult. Also, many of the clans had already sworn an oath to James Stewart, and they couldn't sign another one until they were released from that first oath. And that didn't happen until mid-December. So a number of factors, including travel, weather, and the magistrate not actually being present when they got there, kept the McDonald's of Glencoe from meeting the January 1st deadline. Alistair McLean, chief of the clan, arrived in time to do the signing, but he couldn't actually do it until January 6th. Alistair McLean was not the only chief in the area who missed the deadline, but for whatever reason, he was the only one who was not included in an indemnity that was issued for everyone who had. Instead, McLean and the McDonald's of Glencoe were subject to punishment by the, quote, utmost extremity of the law. It may have just been an oversight or an intentional effort to make an example of the McDonald's of Glencoe for having been publicly loyal to the Stuarts, but the elements of that are still unclear. Regardless, in early February, soldiers arrived at Glencoe seeking shelter, They reported that they had been assigned to Fort William, which was not too far away, only to find that the fort was already past capacity. So the soldiers were billeted in the McDonald's homes. And then on February 13th, starting at about five in the morning, the soldiers, along with others who joined them from Fort William, massacred members of the McDonald clan there in their homes. Alistair McLean was the first to be killed while he was rising from his bed by soldiers who were his guests. About 38 people were killed in the massacre on the 13th, but since the soldiers also burned people's homes, many more died of exposure after the actual conflict was over. 
Three years later, a Scottish parliamentary commission described it as, quote, murder under trust. The Campbell clan has long taken the blame for having orchestrated and executed this whole thing. There was certainly a long-standing feud between the Campbells and the McDonald's, and the Campbells were heavily represented among the military units that committed the massacre. But the Jacobite crackdown was really a much bigger issue than the Campbell-McDonald feud. The Campbells might have, and some would say definitely did, taken the opportunity to exact some kind of justice after years of skirmishes and cattle raids, But it was really William and Mary who put such a sharp focus on rooting out the Jacobites in the first place. We didn't do a full episode about this one, largely because the Game of Thrones episode that prompted so many requests came out in 2013, at which point you couldn't turn around without running into an article about the Glencoe Massacre. So ours kind of would have been redundant. Uh, And after that, it started to feel like the moment had really passed. That was even more true after we did our show on the Jacobite Rising of 1945, since it covers so much of the same territory. The Black Dinner, on the other hand, which is the other thing that everyone asks us to talk about in response to this Game of Thrones episode, uh, that's often summed up as a paragraph, so we are going to include it as kind of a bonus seventh impossible episode. In 1440, 16-year-old William, Earl of Douglas, and his younger brother, David, were invited to visit King James II of Scotland, who was then 10 at Edinburgh Castle. So yes, this is a completely different King James than the one we were talking about earlier in this segment. After being served the head of a black bull, which was a symbol of death, the two boys were taken out into the yard, given a mock trial, convicted of treason, and beheaded. All of this connects to an ongoing power struggle between the monarch and the Douglas clan. At this point, really more like the monarch's advisors, because the monarch himself was only 10. Uh, So basically, the idea was that they were trying to check the Douglas's influence. But the whole story is really full of said to have and may have been. And it's really not clear who arranged this or what their endgame was. Now to completely change gears. Oh, yeah. uh, We're... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, so completely. So get ready, because you may have a bump as we grind through the, <laughs> the gear change. Um, next up, Marion Downs, who is known as the mother of pediatric audiology, uh, requested most recently by Lee and Megan. Unlike so many other doctors we've talked about on the show, Downs didn't spend her whole life planning to go into medicine. She dropped out of college in the 1930s to get married and have children, which was really common among female undergraduates at the time. Once her children got a little older, though, she decided she wanted to go back to school. And this was right after the end of World War II, when colleges and universities were flooded with returning soldiers pursuing an education under the GI Bill. So when Downs went to register for classes at the University of Denver, she picked a course of study by finding the shortest line. And that line was for speech pathology and audiology. Downs didn't really know what that was when she enrolled, but she really excelled at it. And she's known today for her pioneering work in infant hearing screenings. (laughs) I love when someone just sort of stumbles into greatness. (laughs) That's exactly what happened. (laughs) I stumbled into the short line of greatness. Uh, In terms of the brain, a person's language ability develops a lot in their first two years of life, regardless of whether that language is verbal or nonverbal. And when Downs started practicing, most children didn't really get their hearing checked until they were three or four years old. 
And even then, that was usually because the child's parent was concerned that perhaps their speech was delayed. And Downs thought this was a huge disservice, that missing out on those early years of language development was actually setting people up for lifelong trouble with all aspects of communication, including reading. And she was, of course, right. So she started testing children's hearing while they were still babies and fitting them with hearing aids when they were as young as a year old if they needed one. She encountered a lot of resistance to this. In addition to everything that comes along with being one of very few women in a male-dominated field, other doctors insisted that a child's brain wasn't ready to handle a hearing aid until age three or four, and that her work was damaging. From a neurology perspective, Downs was right. Her naysayers were wrong. That that just refusing to fit children with hearing aids meant that the people who were hard of hearing and with a little support could learn to, you know, listen and speak. Like just denying that brain development time for a couple of years meant that the brain development wasn't happening at all. In 1963, Downs started the first systematic infant hearing screening program in Denver, Colorado. Today, 97% of children born at hospitals and birthing centers in the United States have their hearing tested as soon as they are born. Yeah. Maybe not literally in the delivery room, but before they leave the hospital or birthing center, they have a screening. So these tests, of course, are very different today than they were in the 60s. When Downs was creating her testing protocol, she was using a device to play specific sounds and then observing babies' responses to them. So some of the cues that she was looking for could be really subtle, especially in newborns. They were things like blinking or widening their eyes or moving a little bit. So you had to be really good at observation. Today, the screenings usually use a device that plays a tone into the ear and then measures basically the echo from the inner ear. That's a bit of a simplification, but it's an analogy. Another test, which is often done if that first one uh, suggests that the child might have hearing loss, uh, that one measures like the actual brainstem response to sounds using little sort of electrode attachments. And today, there's also some debate about what the best strategy should be for deaf and hard-of-hearing babies. But at this point, there is a lot of evidence backing up the fact that there needs to be some kind of strategy. Children who don't begin to learn language in their first months of life really miss out on critical brain development, and the effects of that missing space are lifelong. Yeah, there's a whole, uh, a whole at this point, body of research about everything from, uh, you know, the ability to comprehend language to be able to express themselves to uh, children who don't begin to learn some sort of language, either verbal or nonverbal, having trouble reading and not being able to to read well for basically the rest of their life. So in addition to her work as a doctor, Downs was also a teacher. She published nearly 100 books and articles on audiology during her career. Toward the end of her life, she also wrote Shut Up and Live, You Know How, a 93-year-old's guide to living to a ripened age. <laughs> I kind of want to read it now. Uh, Downs died on November 13th, 2014, at the age of 100, having made a lot of advances in the world of audiology, while also surviving a plane crash, traveling all over the world, playing tennis, skiing, and narrowly avoiding being blown up by a grenade during the Vietnam War. It is clear that she was both a medical trailblazer and a character, and somebody that chooses her life course based on the length of the line for it. <laughs> but there's more medical than personal information available about her at this point. So maybe someday someone will write her biography, and we would certainly read that book as well. Yep. We're going to take another quick sponsor break before we talk about our last two impossible episodes. 
our last two segments, we're going to start with one that came in as either a post or a comment on our Facebook page, and I didn't immediately write down who said it, which sadly means that's now lost forever. (laughs) Facebook comments and posts are the hardest things to try to track down later on. So thank you, whoever asked us to talk about Lena Himmelstein, who was the founder of Lane Bryant. Himmelstein was born in a shtetl in Lithuania in 1881. Her parents died when she was young, and she was raised by her grandparents. She immigrated to the United States when she was 16, joining her older sister Anna, and the two of them worked in a sweatshop. Himmelstein married a jeweler named David Bryant in 1899. They had a son together, who they named Raphael. But David died not long after Raphael's birth. Widowed and without a source of income, Himmelstein returned to sewing, this time opening a dress shop where she focused on making expensive dresses uh, and lingerie, which were euphemistically called bridal sets. In 1907, a customer asked her to design a maternity dress, and this was, at the time, a new concept in American fashion. People generally wore their regular clothes during pregnancy, letting out the seams or adding extra material to make more room, as their belly swelled and they needed different garment fits. During very advanced pregnancy, when this was not practical, people who could afford to typically just stayed at home. But a lot of people couldn't afford to just stay home while pregnant. And so there was this huge unmet need for a practical, modest, comfortable maternity garment that was appropriate to be worn to work. So Himmelstein's first design was a simple, adjustable dress that used pleats and elastic to expand as needed, and it was an immediate success. When she realized how much demand there was for maternity clothing, Himmelstein branched out into more designs, using elastic and flared skirts and drawstrings, sashes, and ties to try to fashion dresses that were comfortable, expandable, and often also concealing. Many of them were designed to still be wearable, sometimes with a little bit of alteration after the baby was born. This concealment of pregnancy was actually a really big deal. In the first decades of Himmelstein's business, people who could afford it replaced their regular corsets with maternity corsets, which were designed to both support the figure and conceal the appearance of pregnancy. And you could actually buy these at a number of retailers, including Lane Bryant. As I was looking to see if I could find a picture of her or like a good historical picture of a of an old storefront or something. I kept finding all of these maternity corset ads and they were all on scans of newspaper pages and there would be three or four other maternity corset ads right around there. So maternity corsets, hot item at the time. <laughs> In 1902, Himmelstein remarried Lithuanian-American mechanical engineer Albert Malson. They eventually had three children together. Malson started working on the financial and logistical side of the business, helping it to expand. And the business incorporated as Lane Bryant Incorporated in 1916, when she had opened her first bank account for the business back in those earlier days of that first dress shop. Her name had been Lena Bryant, but the bank misspelled it as Lane and the name just stuck. So was she going by that name? Nope. Nope. The I don't think she personally was going by the name, but... It was just it, the business name. The bit, yeah. The when the bank misspelled it on her her business account, the that definitely stuck for the business name. Gotcha. Sales grew rapidly from fifty thousand dollars to five million dollars between nineteen oh nine and nineteen twenty three. 
1917, she also branched out from maternity wear into plus-sized clothing. This time, after having measured thousands of women and found that they all generally fit into one of three body types. So she made clothing in larger sizes for each of those types. By 1969, Lane Bryant had more than a 100 stores, and this was in spite of cultural taboos that had prevented Himmelstein herself from being able to advertise in the earliest years of the business. Most of her early advertising was done through word of mouth, and most of her sales came from mail-order catalogs. Even so, for decades, most of the women in Lane Bryant's advertisements were very slender. None of them were visibly pregnant. (laughs) They were basically like... (laughs) Like like women in little little dresses with little tiny waists, <laughs> being like, yes, you can expand this dress quite a lot. <laughs> well, and that's one of those things that's even carried through into the modern era. Only in the fairly recent era, in plus size catalogs, have models been anything over like a twelve, right? So it's it's changing now, but um, it's slowly but but happening. <laughs> Yes. In addition to designing and selling clothing for populations that were not really being served by the fashion industry, Lena Himmelstein was also on the forefront of labor rights for retail employees. During her time at the company's helm, employees received reimbursements for medical care, along with pensions, life insurance, disability coverage, and profit sharing. She was also a philanthropist, donating to the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society and the New York Federation of Jewish Philanthropies, among others. Hemelstein died on September 26, 1951, at which point Lane Bryant was the largest plus-size clothing retailer in the United States. And in today's running theme, if someone wrote a full biography of Lena Himmelstein, I would read that for sure. Uh, And now, once again, another gear change. Uh, We're going to go out on a much lighter note, courtesy of our listener, Mike, and that is the Great Wyndham Frog Fight of 1754. Uh, At least it's lighter if you're not especially... Uh, soft on frogs or really love them. <laughs> yeah, if you if you like frogs a lot or just animals in general, not so much of a lighter story, but it is really weird. So things weren't going too well in Wyndham, Connecticut in the summer of 1754. The French and Indian War had started that May, and the region had also been beset by drought. And then on one particularly muggy night in June, I did not find anywhere that specified what night in June specifically, Residents were terrified out of their beds by a horrible, inexplicable cacophony. People heard all kinds of shouts among the clamor, and they sounded like calls for rum or gin, or the names of the town's militia leaders, or the names of the people listening, or war cries from an invading army, or the trumpets on Judgment Day. (laughs) Sometimes people call it the frog fright because it was so very frightening. There was just so much noise. Some of the local militia did take up arms and fire into the darkness, but that had little effect. By morning, though, the sound had died down. After dawn, the residents of Wyndham left their homes to find hundreds of bullfrogs belly up all over the place. They eventually concluded that they had been fighting over the last remnant of water in a nearly dry pond and that those frogs fighting had caused all of this noise. We're also taking with a grain of salt how many frogs there really were (laughs) because we only have the accounts of people who were frightened out of their wits. Uh, So this became a weirdly popular story in the 18th century. 
The town put a frog on its official seal. There were poems and ballads and even an operetta written about it. The Wyndham Bank even issued money with a pair of frogs, one living and one dead, with the living one kind of like lording over the dead one in a position of victory uh, in the lower right corner. Today, Wyndham is known as Willimantic, and there's a bridge over the Willimantic River that has giant bronze frog sculptures on it. So that's basically the whole story. (laughs) (laughs) Why? That's why we're not doing a whole episode on it. It's very weird, but there, there's just not, not a lot more there. I like how it's like the frog spooked us real bad and now it's our town identity. <laughs> exactly what happened. Do you, do you have some listener mail? Sure do. Uh, and this is from Kara and it goes back all the way back to our, uh, Hernandez versus Texas episode, which was earlier this fall. And Kara says, hi, Holly and Tracy. I love the show. I listen on my way to work and I love finding out new and interesting things on my commute. I had honestly thought I would never have a reason to write in about an episode because I thought that my life and experience did not particularly intersect with history. But then I heard your episode on Hernandez versus Texas. I was delighted to hear a brief reference to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. I'm a lawyer, and after graduating from law school, I clerked for a judge on the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. A clerkship is a one- to two-year position where a generally newly graduated lawyer assists a judge by reviewing petitions, doing research, advising the judge, and helping to draft opinions. My time with this little-known court was very interesting, and I'm so glad for the experience. I still fondly remember eating my lunch on a bench outside the Texas State Capitol nearly every day and looking at the beautiful flowers that are planted there. Here's a bit of legal trivia. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals is one of only two high courts that exclusively hears criminal cases. In Texas, the Texas Supreme Court hears only civil, that is, non-criminal cases. While the Court of Criminal Appeals is at the same level as the Texas Supreme Court, Here's only criminal cases. This explains why Hernandez appealed directly from the CCA to the U.S. Supreme Court and did not go to the Texas Supreme Court. Uh, and then it follows with a plug for an episode idea. And then Kara says, thanks for all you do. Kara, thank you so much, Kara. I am so glad that, uh, that we had got this email because I was actually curious about why the case had gone from the uh, Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, which just by its name suggests that it is an appeals court that would probably be like a, a rung below a Supreme Court, um, why it had gone directly from that to the U.S. Supreme Court. So I was very glad to learn that reason, which is one of those like details that I did not look up at the time because it was not completely pertinent to what we were talking about. So thank you so much, Kara, for writing in. Also, Feel free to write in just to say hello. We love those emails, too. Yes, indeed. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook and uh, Twitter and Pinterest and Instagram. All of those at Missed in History is our name there. Uh, you can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and you will find the show notes to all the episodes that... Holly and I have done together in a searchable archive of all the episodes ever. So come and see us at MissHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 